Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm host Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or ROW, helps leaders to be change makers and to create better workplaces. With a community of champions from organizations around the globe, ROW is dedicated to helping you to develop your professional expertise, access practical tools and resources, and network with peers and experts to meaningfully improve wellbeing. These interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars and are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. In this session, we turn our focus to well-being at the board table. To better understand the views and perspectives of those at the most senior levels, we're joined by Francois Barton, Executive Director at the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum. We explore the views and concerns of those at the board table when it comes to well-being, and we discuss the lessons learned so far from the COVID-19 crisis. Francois will share his insights. We will also discuss how we, as well-being leaders can influence the well-being discussion at the board level to better support well-being across our organizations. I really warmly welcome you to to the group today. Now the first thing I thought would be great in terms of kicking off our discussion was to understand a bit more about the forum. So how did the forum start and what has been sort of your view on how the view on health and safety has changed over the last well a few years since you've been involved in, in the forum? Awesome. Look, thanks. Thanks. Sarah, um, and you would have noted 2010 is when we kicked it off, which means last month was our 10th anniversary. So July July 2010, we formally kicked off. So I actually said in the LinkedIn post, I never thought we'd actually still be here when we started off this idea of chief executives playing their part in a health and safety. And, and we didn't even talk about well-being. So maybe that's one of the areas of progress, but health and safety. And actually, let's be honest, safety. The idea that it was going to have a future was was a real punt into the into the blue. So yeah, really chuffed to be with you here today. My my background and when I was in the Department of Labour, what struck me coming into the department in about two thousand and six around health and safety is that it was the department did not have a relationship with any organisation above fourth tier, a fourth tier manager. There was no role of there was no connection with industry. There was no uh, recognition of the role of senior executives, or let alone chief executives, in that discussion. And it really reflected, I think, a technical view only of what health and safety meant. It was the role of a manager and that manager's team to do health and safety. Uh, the department was was very much in that space. I've been doing some work around culture uh, and any model of culture you look at will have leadership as one of the fundamental sort of ingredients, whatever framework you use. And so when we looked at, if we wanted to shift culture, uh, we needed to build leadership and we looked out, there just wasn't any there. So we, we worked with uh, a, a few different people and invited some CEs and said to them, we can't regulate our way to safety. We might be able to get there if, if, if you play your part. Are you up for it? And to all of our surprise, and to themselves, I think they said yes. So what we didn't do was control it. We said, well, if you want to do it, will you help form it? And so we let go. And yeah, basically a year after that initial conversation, the forum kicked off. And from there, from 100 CEs on day one, we are where we are now with 350, 360 odd chief executives. I guess the more interesting piece is what are we seeing shift over that period of time? And, and I don't know about all of you, but if we were looking at the health and safety performance of New Zealand last year, it was pretty sober reading in terms of uh, construction was back into decade high, uh, rates of, of, of work-related fatality, you know, suicide in construction equally poor. The mental health discussion, whilst being destigmatized and growing, is still 
sitting in the backdrop of some pretty dire uh, realities for a lot of workplaces and society. So at one level, I get um, frustrated and I get, I feel like nothing's changed anywhere near enough. But then I stop, I feel like I'm in that don't think I'm not French. I'm going to say I'm not like the frog in the boiling water. You don't realise how actually what shifts we have made. I, I think we have got a we've got a better health and safety framework now. We've got an independent regulator. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but a woman called Catherine Epps has just been appointed as general manager, looking at health and well-being as an appointed senior exec on the WorkSafe leadership team. Well, that, that wasn't even imaginable a decade ago. I look across my membership of chief executives. We've got a genuine, solid group whose level of maturity and understanding of health and safety has, has gone great. I think initially when the forum started off, the idea of safety leadership, and I'm using safety exclusively quite deliberately, it was a hero concept. Safety is important and I'm going to lead, like, you know, the Anthony Robbins person, you know, the, the whole, you know, that motivational business strategy guy, this idea of a flag-waving hero leadership model and and that was okay to start that's what got people in the tent and allowed them to, to to do their work from a leadership perspective that was great what i'm now seeing as ceos particularly over COVID 19 having had underlined that care and protection is a really good strategy care and protection can deliver bottom line benefit to the organization that if as a ceo i want to engage uh, and drive culture within my organization health safety and well-being is a really really wonderful proxy to have a lot of other conversations and i might touch on this again later but maslow's hierarchy don't ask me to love if i can't breathe so why would i want to engage on a give you all my discretionary effort within this company if i don't feel safe i don't feel well i certainly don't feel healthy and so i think that idea of safety and health and well-being as a proxy for wider sort of cultural progress is i think a lot of caught on to that and i and i think that's great and also this idea i think that i suspect you're all already across but health and safety it's about work and it's about better work and if we can elevate the conversation to better work, better productive work, better quality work, uh, more reliable work, safer work, we can have a lot different types of conversations. I don't think that's what the predominant conversation is, but that is part of the conversation now that simply wasn't 10 years ago. I still think we're still anchored fundamentally misdiagnosing health, safety and well-being as predominantly technical problems. We fix them and they stay fixed and then we can move on. We want to set up a structure, we want to fix it, we want to program with the name of the problem on the top of it. So we'll have a well-being strategy and that fixes that problem over there. We'll have a safety strategy and that fixes that problem over there. I think that's okay to progress things and give some emphasis. I think the dilemma with that is you tend to get further and further down, you end up getting sucked into rabbit holes. And these aren't technical problems. Everything is interdependent. How we procure business, how we structure workflow in our organisation, the, uh, the, the physical work environment, the nature of our market, what we measure, what we monitor at a business level as well in a wellbeing. They all impact each other. And, and I think the technical piece misses all of those connections. And I think the value and the opportunity by engaging chief executives is you've got the chance to be able to connect across those issues. And maybe that's something, Sarah, we might well dip back into at the end of the conversation. I, I think there's for particularly the nature of the work, you know, all of you do. How do you tap into the breadth and the, the influence the CEO can bring with the breadth of their interest when you're bringing depth to the conversation? That breadth and depth piece can sometimes be quite challenging because what they can often feel like is you're just adding something more on. And if I'm already busy and flat out, I don't want more. <laughs> 
I don't want more. They don't need more. So, yeah, look, I think we are doing okay. I think we are doing okay and we are making progress and there are pockets of great and there are pockets of frustratingly slow. But probably the ultimate thing, Sarah, if I was to blow smoke in your collective direction, we wouldn't have been having a wellbeing Zoom meeting on a Wednesday on wellbeing three years ago, five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. So something's got to be improved. It's changing and changed a lot. And I did um, see on on the website there's been some research that the forum has done um, over the previous years. And obviously this is pre-COVID, but I just want to touch on this because I thought that touches to that point about it being a technical piece. So the quote here was that by far the most commonly identified risk to mental health and wellbeing was work demands, which was mentioned by 95% of leaders. However, the most common resource organisations provided was keeping people uh, to keep your health and safety was EAP programs, which served as an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Relatively few organisations appeared to be responding to the risks proactively. So I was interested in, in, in that point for you, where you're seeing people see it, uh, the senior leaders see it as an issue, but perhaps what we're doing in practice looks different. And what are your perceptions of that discrepancy? I reckon, I mean, it, it, it's not, I suspect that rings true. Did that ring true for you? For me, yes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, I speak, so. you know, and, and people can nod. Yeah, I'm seeing a few nods there. Yeah, I, I think it probably rings true for all of us. I, th- I think there's, there's a couple of, in my case, um, the Chatham, it was wonderful to hear you refer to the Chatham House rule singular, Sarah. That's a, I'm a stickler and a pedant, so thank you. It's a rule, it's a singular rule. And I'm quite happy for you to reference me in any context you want, good or bad, uh, everyone. I'm quite fine with, I'm quite happy with that. And the caveat is nothing I say is true, it's just my opinion. So, you can reference my opinions as far as you wish. I think there's a couple of, in that spirit, Sarah, I think there's a couple of things for me in that. I think one of it, one part of it, I think, is it reflects how chief executives and boards, I think, are still sort of tackling or trying to get their head around understanding what do we mean by this broader mental wellbeing issue. So how do we make sense of this thing? So, and I'll come back to that. So I think there's a there's a sense-making gap at the moment that that's part of why the problem is so screamingly one thing, yet all of the solutions are another. I think the other one is, this might be a little bit more provocative, but again, probably not to you all, which is the idea of meaningfully tackling issues like fatigue with work capacity and hours of work is just incredibly challenging to our current default way of doing business. Like it's systemically challenging. And what we've just observed is we've seen more progress in the space of 100 days around the use of remote working arrangements. But what did it require? It required an existential global pandemic to force us to do it. So I think So I'll I'll dip back to that contextual piece in a a bit. So I think the sense-making, how do we make sense over what this this sort of cluster of well-being and mental health issues are? About a year and a half, two years ago, we kicked off into trying to go, how can we help with CEs on this? And what I was hearing was directors, boards of directors and chief executives saying, yes, mental health and well-being is important for us. I'm worried about suicides. And so they would go straight. This conversation in their mind was a suicide conversation. And they would equally very quickly go to suicide and everything that's going on in the private lives of these people. So I have an empathetic concern for my people, but it's life that's getting on top of them. So that, that's where part of their minds went. So I had a lot of conversations like that. I had a lot of other conversations that were, oh, look, this well-being thing's so important. Our fruit on a Friday and yoga on Thursday programs are just going great. And I'm going, okay, both of those conversations are valid. 
and they're real. And then sort of probably right through the middle of this was the perennial question. And it was, I'll put it gently and diplomatically, it was a question in their minds. I think you will all agree, it's probably had a bit more behind it, but where does self-responsibility fit in? You know, what am I, like, what am I not responsible for now? As a business, I'm struggling to, I need to understand where does my responsibilities as a business finish and when does the self-responsibility and individual piece start? And then I can make sense of it. So, So I think, again, that's not, wrong. I think there is a self-responsibility piece here. So we tried to do, I guess, to help that. And, and I, I, I don't know, if, if you've not seen, we produced a, Sarah, Sarah, you can- We'll link got, to it. Yeah, you can point them towards it. Dr. Hillary Bennett. Does anyone know Dr. Hillary Bennett? She's quite a well-known, yeah. So Hillary's a long-term friend of the forum and, and, and personal friend of mine. So we engaged her to help us. And so what we, what she, what we worked on together, well, she basically said, I'm just going to refer to the playing field, okay? What, what, what she said was, is health and, mental health and well-being or mental well-being is not one thing. It's a, it's, we all have mental health. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Um, it's dynamic. And we're constantly, everybody, even the big boss, is constantly moving up and down that continuum. And what moves you up and down is sometimes me and sometimes you. Sometimes it's work, sometimes it's home, sometimes it's brain chemistry, sometimes it's a combination of all of those three things, and they're always changing. So what that means is I am part of my mental well-being, as is work impacting part of my well So it's not one or the other, it's both. Uh, and the other piece I think we usually brought on it that's useful, I think proved useful for boards and for chief executives, is saying there's part of this conversation which is actually a legal obligation. And you have a obligation, a legal duty, under the new Health and Safety at Work Act, and it's new in the minds of many directors still, I know it's not new to any of you, to identify and manage and preferably eliminate risk. And that includes mental well-being. So in this sort of playing field piece, there's parts of this that are proactive. This is a protect part. There's a support part. There's a foster part. There's a reclaim part. There's before harm, mental harm hurts. You can proactively protect people before mental harm is caused and you can foster people to be strong before anything hits and then you can help after the fact you can support them eap counseling work arrangements or you can give them a little bit of support to help if it's just at a, at a, at a more minor level to get back up to protect and to support is an obligation it's not okay legally it's not okay ethically it's not okay commercially to have mentally unhealthy practices to have psychosocial risks to have mental well-being risks in your place of work you have to proactively seek them out and you need to do something about them and if like i broke my arm at work I, I, there's a legal expectation that get me to a doctor there is also a legal obligation around providing support so to directors chief executives there is an obligation here but the obligation isn't to wrap the person up in cotton wool and send them home happy it's broader than that it's more focused psychos the things that you impact that work impacts on people that's your bit so yes they might be having problems at home you don't you care about that but that's not your responsibility and then understanding there are then opportunities not obligations opportunities to help foster people and that's where food and yoga and, and a bunch of other I'm deliberately throwing those out cheekily but there's a whole bunch of other things that sit on that opportunity so we talk about mental health and well-being as about obligations creating opportunity so we anchor the conversation and obligations because it's kind of like guess what you might not want to, but you have to talk about this part. But if we want to get ourselves to a better place, actually, there's a bunch of opportunities in here. 
I think what you saw in that survey, Sarah, was people not really understanding that actually effective management of these issues is playing all four quarters. And consequently, the issue and solutions, because they both have well-being associated with them, must be related. So I think we've we've found, I have found personally, this this we call it, you know, you've got to play the full field of mental well-being. I've found this a really, really constructive way of being able to engage or, or challenge in a constructive sense, executives and boards around seeking and helping them understand, okay, so if that's the plan, what are we doing across those areas? And what you'll see is they tend to be doing a, a lot in the fruit on a Friday and a lot around EAP and proactively doing nothing at the top. And so what it, what it does passively is it says, and you, leverage, and you can leverage Dr. Hillary's uh, expertise and the forums to say, this isn't a religious statement of, 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 of a balanced framework. This borrows Canadian, UK, Australian and New Zealand expertise, you're interested. And if you only want to play in the obligation space, cool. But that means fatigue and work hours is on the table. That might mean the fruit and well-being stuff that makes you feel good and gets the good engagement scores might not be, but the fatigue piece has to be on the agenda. So I think I think what we're seeing is people still getting to grips with trying to make sense of the playing field. And I think so I think that's 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 the, the big piece. And I think that's something you, you can all do something about. That's a conversation you can structure and, 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 and engage your teams with. Um, and you can exemplify um, really, really clearly. I, I think the issue of fatigue, the devil we need to collectively look in the eye is our great wonderful productivity dream in New Zealand is but and, and the Western world has basically been optimizing our businesses to efficiency. And we have got fewer people carrying more, carrying further for less. Now, I'm not making that as a political statement. I'm saying that's a relatively measurable, objective truth. And that efficiency optimizations worked really well on a lot of business metrics. And it worked really, really well until <clears throat> COVID-19 showed actually a highly optimized and efficient model can also break down quite quickly. So I think you know how we can actually tackle those issues, those fundamental psychosocial risks like work hours and fatigue you know i think i think that is a, it, 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 it i think it runs the challenge it finds is it runs straight into some sacred cows some some business philosophies some default ways of doing business that are we benefit from 100 percent now and, and 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 the costs can be sort of externalized a lot I, I think that the opportunity is that i think in the last couple of three years the mental wealth the mental health conversation has shifted that discussion and made that discussion that discussion has been had at the board table now even if it's uncomfortable i think COVID-19 has highlighted actually people, relationships and connections across organisations and people's abilities to lean in and flex actually made the difference between some businesses being able to respond or not respond. So I, I interrupt you, um, Francois, because I'm, I'm keen to pick up just on that COVID-19 piece, because I think that's a really good part to pick up here. You know, from your perspective and your conversations, what are the big issues for, around wellbeing that are keeping CEOs and boards awake at night at the moment? And, and what are they seeing ahead as some of the issues? There's a referendum coming up, isn't there? And, I, and look, I tell you what, I mean, I think it's quite emblematic, almost exactly what I've just been saying. But can you just put your hands up if cannabis has been an issue discussed at your ESL? If you Put your hand up if there's any anxiety you're sensing around your senior leaders in your organisation around cannabis. Is there any? Yeah, one, two, three, okay. I would love if we could spend 5% of the time, energy and anxiety around a cannabis debate around fatigue because it's a bigger cause of impairment than cannabis is. 
Now, I'm not saying cannabis is cool in the workplace. I'm not saying people should smoke pot in the car park and walk in and operate heavy equipment. But we have been complicit in turning a blind eye to those other impairment causes for a long, long time. So I think we're starting to see impairment from a well-being perspective being a, a, a headline issue. I think the misfire at the moment is to me, we've got a nice little devil called cannabis that we can land and blame that conversation on. And what that means is it's the idiots that smoke pot that are the problem, not how we structure work and organise work. So I think that's a big issue. I think that's a really, really big issue. I, I think the, the, the what COVID-19 is doing is putting huge commercial and market pressure on, on, on businesses everywhere. So we've got mass, we're going to be having mass redundancies, huge restructuring and a massive amount of adaptation. I think at the same time, we need our people to be working constructively and bringing adaptation and innovation to the table. The CEOs I'm talking to are really aware that there's a there's a fatigue piece sneaking. Uh, when I say not fatigue, as in well, an impairment fatigue, but there's a an anxiety fatigue. There's a that uncertainty is is, is putting an underlay of of, of concern, mental health concern uh, into the in, into their organisation. So I think that's a that's a very significant well-being issue. It's not a conversation I've been part of much through the forum, but I think obviously the bullying and harassment piece is, is a really, really significant well-being issue. But I, other than seeing FENS, the fire and emergency, probably showing what good response looked like and the police still tripping up a little bit as a counterexample, I probably don't have much to, to offer on that space. But I think that wider impairment space and just mental distress as a result of economic uncertainty, social instability, and, and all of those things, probably the two big issues, I think, Sarah. Mm. And do you think there's a difference between what the CEO is worried about and what, what boards are worried about? Or do you think it comes in the same conversation? I'm probably biased because my constituency are chief executives. I'll be really honest. I've been quietly underwhelmed. At, I think if I look at the, the, the modest and self-deprecating progress CEOs have made in New Zealand over the last 10 years, I've not seen boards mirror that same progress. I've been surprised at how there are conversations I'm having with boards currently that really are no different than I had three years ago when the legislation was coming through. And I guarantee you the first question the board will really be interested on is what's my liability in this context? That will be their question. I was on a panel and I'm not saying I'm not criticising the Institute of Directors here. I just think that's been the director response more broadly. I was on a panel conversation on cannabis with the Institute of Directors recently. And the first question they said is, so let's run a hypothetical. There's an accident. Someone's injured. They were tested positive for cannabis. What's my liability? And I, can, I just laughed. I said, well, I don't think I've ever talked to a director where that's not their first question. So... In, in a way, yes, I think direct boards, uh, I think CEOs need help to be able to engage boards effectively because they are, boards are very, very, particularly more conservative boards are very often, I think, struggle with that sense-making piece. It's the same problem. They don't make, they can't make sense of it. But I think the old nose in, fingers out type piece also sees them quite reluctant to, to get engaged in that space anywhere near as they can. But if we go back to all of this is about better work and their proactive due diligence responsibility, and you look at the current situation where everything's in flux, they've got a golden opportunity to actually get out and do that proactive due diligence and learn a hang of a lot more. They just are they're just struggling to, to, to get through this. So in short, yes, there's a difference between CEOs and boards. And I think a lot of CEOs tell me they need help to, to, to get the board conversation nationally maturing or evolving because it still feels pretty static.
Mm. And one of the things I'm hearing is it almost sounds like understanding what well-being is is still the first milestone. It sounds like it's not necessarily clear what well-being is, what it's defined as, and where the borders are in terms of the workplace uh, the liability risk, and then actually doing something pro- proactive for people and business. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and 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 I'm sure, given all of you work in the well-being space, there are probably elements of the well-being co-papa I'm missing, right? I I I'm tend to be more focused on the obligation. I'm more interested in, I guess, leveraging the obligation side of the broader well-being piece. But I, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. I think there's a, which is why we've put most of our effort into first make sense, first make sense of what this is, then make sense of your role in improving what that is, and then you can have conversations off the back. So we've spent a year and a half, two years really pushing this sense-making frame. And and what's interesting is, is we, we turned it into then, after those four sectors, we got four sort of reflective questions that let an organisation kind of do a, a really high-level gap analysis, I guess, a self-drive gap analysis. And I think that's what directors are. Hit, hit directors where it hurts. They're worried about liability. Start with obligation. Give them a give them a credible process. Give them a credible framework. Create tension constructively, but don't just make them scared. Make them focused. And I think that definitional piece. And so I'm not saying this is the right definition, but sometimes in this space, if you've got some underlying liability concerns anchoring to something that's got some broader establishment that they may have seen elsewhere, can just help. You're not bringing, you're not trying to evangelise, you're kind of anchoring to something more sort of established or, or conventional in that sense. So, I mean, we've been giving, it's probably of all of the work we've done in the last 10 years, that Mental Health and Wellbeing at Work Guide would be probably the piece of work I've been most proud to be associated with. It's the one that I think has landed most usefully on trying to connect the important work that sits in your teams and, and the wider organisation and the role of the CE and the board. And when you were rolling out the model, tell me, I imagine there would have been a, a range of views and perspectives and comfort levels with addressing mental health in the workplace. Can you talk a little to that? I, I, someone said, I mean, Hillary, Hillary's, if you, if you ever get the chance, anyone to see Hillary and you've not met her, she's just, she's a, a wonderful, New Zealand's lucky to have her. She won the, she got the Lifetime Achievement Award, the Safeguard Awards last year, rightly so. Um, but she said she was... She said it. She kicked off the conversation, and 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 again, this is maybe a little tip you might. Well, I've used it. She started the conversation. I'm not going to tell you anything. All I'm going to say is, what's the rock in your shoe? When when we say we're going to talk about mental health today, what's the rock in your shoe when we talk about that? And what I loved about that is it what it just it instantly gave them permission to be concerned, anxious, worried, frustrated. And and that just frees them up because you're not cutting them because so much of the safety and well-being conversation is come on. Whereas this was sort of saying, look, this this could be challenging. What's the rock in your shoe? So we then had this conversation. We introduced this model, and she said at the end, have we taken the rock out? And a few people said, I now have gravel in my shoe. So what what they had was lots of littler problems, but they, at least they started to get some. So I think the challenge that all people are finding is the breadth the breadth of actually tackling this is hard if it's about if this is an outcome of work wow work's got a lot of different elements and I think people find that quite confronting and another another probably to that point and 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 then I'll probably hand it back to you, Sarah. Someone just said, I feel like we're taking the lift lid off Pandora's box. And once we see what's there, we can't unsee it. And so I think there's a there's an anxiety 
because I think what that also tells me is there's a complicit sense that we know it's all shit. And as long as it's invisible, we can kind of get away with that because we've got a whole lot of other metrics that are saying life's great. But I think I think it's okay to acknowledge that. And so again, I think bringing a, a framework to that conversation means you can chunk up with a gap analysis. Well, maybe step one is step one is where are we at? Step two is where's the great? Where, you know, where do we agree we need to take the? What's the key gap we need to fill? What's the key strength we need to underline? But yeah, Pandora's box. And I think by giving people not a simple technical answer, but a, a, a respectful, comp- letting them embrace the complexity that this ain't simple, it's, it's diverse. I think they found that confronting. I think equally, though, it also felt true. And because it felt true, I think they felt I saw in a bunch of CEOs a willingness to actually engage in it accordingly. Um, the worst thing we can do, I think, is tell people it'll all be okay. If you just do this or buy that product or do this survey, it'll be okay. Worst case scenario, they'll do the survey and guess what it won't be. Second, or conversely, they'll say this whole conversation is just snake oil. The whole conversation is just a ticket clip product push, not a embracing the complex realities of what we've got to do. So so it's hard to complex embrace the complexity. That's a really challenging piece. And so all I'm and we're a not-for-profit and all of our resources are free. So I'm not plugging in any I've got no consultancy follow-up here at all. I work with good people like Sarah who does who do the right work. But I guess that's what our framework provides is a way of chunking that complexity in a way you can actually not choke on it, but actually say, okay, right, let's let let let's go forward. Can I unpick that a little further? And I'm and what I'm almost hearing in some ways is it sounds like for CEOs it's very easy to operate almost in a headspace, a logical space. Uh, I'm at an overly simplified level, a widget in, widget out, plan for supply management, you know, deliver outcomes. And what we're engaging with as well in well-being is almost the heart space and the empathy and the compassion, the authenticity, the having to have those really difficult, challenging conversations where there's not kind of a black or white right answer. Um, would that be an assess- a fair assessment? Yeah, or- yeah maybe. maybe. I mean, I, I, think, I think the CEOs are used to dealing with complexity. In fact, you know, I'll, this could sound glib, but I think, um, farewell, Nigel. I think someone said this to me when I started my role, and I, I, found, it, I found it really helpful. A chief executive's complexity is breadth, not depth. That The moment you go to the top, you talk to the SLT or the board, the complexity of their world is the breadth of what they're addressing, not the depth. And I think collectively, and I'm not pointing to anyone here, but I think the profession has made safety, uh, we've put it into boxes. We've spent our entire professional careers putting things into boxes. And so when we've engaged that breadth, that breadth of complexity at the top, what we've told them is if you do these things, fund this program, deliver this strategy, put this critical risk program, put, put this audit and process, get these investigation things, we're done. And... The frustration for a lot of chief executives, and I think a lot of certainly a lot of health, safety, and well-being professionals, is, is it's not been done. They've spent that time, they've spent that effort. It's not hugely rewarding, and it's not got the result. Or it's been enough. It's been sufficient. It's it, they've not had massive fatalities because we've not been clever about necessarily knowing what we're looking for in terms of a well-being standpoint. That. The failings haven't been that evident or in front. So that actually, well, in a world of breadth. I pay that money and the manager I employ to deal with this says it's done and it's done. That's good. That lets me get on with the other things. So I think, so I think that the, the, the empathy and all that stuff, that's part of that. So I think 
getting into this conversation usefully for a chief executive certainly involves them needing to, I think, embrace those capabilities, Sarah. And some CEOs are actually natural at this. They're born, actually, that's part of their success that they've got to the top as they can do that. What they've often not had necessarily is being given the support or the challenge or the frameworks to actually make sense of their work in the safety space. And I, I see that with CEOs coming into the forum. They start thinking we're going to talk to them about health and safety like a risk register or technical issues around health, safety and, and well-being. And we talk about leadership and adaptation and innovation and resilience and capacity building and culture and dignity and, and mental well-being. We talk about a whole bunch of things and actually there's this, you can sort of see this, this mist rising. It's kind of like, ah, oh, this is all about people and leadership and work it's like oh I can I get that so I think I think there's part of it is how do we how do we structure opportunities to actually show let chief executives and senior executives and directors actually see and feel that reality and I think the beauty of the due diligence responsibilities whilst I, I'm frustrated we've not had the change there is a proactive requirement that direct um, you know officers and most big senior C-suites and CEs and directors are that they kind of need to get out there and see some stuff. I mean, if, if you, again, just putting your hand up, do you know if you've got senior people in your organisation who have some sort of safety visit, safety walk? Yeah. So that's time that's already been invested. You don't need to ask for more time. What I guarantee is happening is it's a broadcast. I'm going to be present to show everybody that this is important to me. And I'll ask the questions my team gave me. Not always. I'm being deliberately provocative here. But it's a broadcast. It's not a reception piece too. Can I learn anything? Am I learning anything from talking to the people doing your work? And, and I'm sure you're all familiar with, you know, some of that safety differently, safety to work around understanding there's work as we imagine it and there's work as we've done as we do it. And work as done is actually the norm. And work as done holds huge insights around better solutions, smarter ways of doing things, yet we run this sort of corporate cabal around the work as imagined is actually what we're going to hold people to account to. And when we go out, if we call it a compliance visit and we're going to say this is important, does my language encourage people to show me how it's actually done so I can learn something and they can learn something and they can be the expert for a while and I can listen? Or do they, they know exactly what to tell me? They tell me what the protocol said or what the report what the report last audit said they should be doing said. So I think there's a bunch of ways we can help CE start to embrace and see the, 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 that complexity, but just to do it in a managed, staged way, but do it through proper narrative, proper stories, I think is just a hugely good opportunity. And again, if their breadth is already full, but they're doing something like those visits, use that time. I don't need more time. Just use that time smartly. Why don't we get value out of that time? So how you can how you can then play with that hour a month or two hours a month or whatever it looks like becomes a, a, an opportunity to shift the conversation. So I think that I think the desire for technical box ticking and and all of that stuff I think I think we've all been complicit in that at times as well. Um, and good CEOs very quickly get to the point where they actually appreciate that actually, and we've done a bunch of case studies that were really exclusively trying to demonstrate you don't always fix health and safety or well-being by fixing health and safety and well-being. Transpower case study we did, they they had massive problems with their, I don't know, 50, 60, $300 million 
asset management program for their towers. And no matter how much, and Transpower are a respectable, capable business, and they were taking safety seriously and productivity seriously, but their tower painters were appalling. Bad safety results, bad productivity results, and the more Transpower tried to fix the safety and productivity issue, the worse it got. These guys had to carry 30 kilos of five layers, five layers of protective equipment with 30 kilos of gear on a, on a truck. And so that was the safety piece. And then the truck was designed by a bunch of electrical engineers, not tower painters, to help them with their productivity stuff. And, they, and it was called the white elephant. It was so useless. Finally, they said, what's going on? And they said, well, you ship clients. You give us three-month work contracts. It takes four years to train someone effectively. There's a whole lot of cost around gear investment. It's awful. So they all they changed was the tenure of the contract. They went from t- three months to 18 months. or three. It wasn't even that big, but that was enough to make the contract bankable. And because the contract was bankable, they could buy gear, they could buy truck. They partnered with North Power, partnered with Swazi and turned those five layers of clothing into a one layer export product that does exactly the same as those other five with one. They are, from a productivity standpoint, producing twice as much area of tower maintained for the same cost. Safety's gone through the floor in terms of harm reducing, and the cost has stayed the same. So they improved safety not by fixing safety. They improved safety by creating an environment where the contractors could actually do better work. And New Plymouth District Council's very, very similar stories. So if I was to give another, I think, you know, Sarah, when you and I were talking a while back, I think in particularly the COVID stuff, I was reflecting that I was really struggling to find, I was getting really confronted by what was my role in a leadership group around COVID. And I was locked in my little home and I didn't know what to do. And I realised that my default is when in doubt, connect. When in doubt, start talking to people. When in doubt, reach out. When in doubt, find someone you can just, and just doesn't matter who, just start and keep going. And and within three days of doing that, all of a sudden, I had a different sense of the context. I had a completely different sense of the context. I had a bunch of stories. I had some sound bites. I had a sense of what was causing. And so all of a sudden, I had something I could aim at. And I think if we, if, if the complexity of the CEO role is breadth, but we, our roles often come in it with depth, I think the single best thing you can always do when you're looking to engage your senior people is engage across your business, connect across your business, have as many appropriate excuse, whether they're cups of coffee or formal team session, whatever they are, you will never over-connect if what you're doing is listening. If what you're going around is telling everybody what to do the time, that's not connecting, that's that's blunt force trauma. But why that can, done well, that connection will give you context. It will give you allies. It will tell you where you've got thieves in your mix, in your midst. And I, I, I think it'll also give you practical examples of where you might be able to help. And so then when you're engaging, and that you can then manufacture either visits for your CEs or ESLT off the back of that, or when you're then pitching your proposal or your plan or your paper you're not doing it in depth you're speaking to their breadth and so this idea of know your audience it's really easy to say but in this space i think it's there's truth behind it you're talking to ceos whose who challenges the context within which they operate 
the more you can demonstrate you get that, that you understand it and you see how your thread adds value to or makes sense across that, what I call the corporate immune system won't round, the antibodies won't round on your project as something foreign. It will see it as part of helping. And I think COVID has just provided, if you can't have a well workforce, a engaged workforce, they won't turn up. Don't ask me to love if I can't breathe. Don't ask me to turn up at work if I don't feel it's safe. So the op and, and we and I guarantee your organizations had a bunch of stories through lockdown where people just didn't turn up at work. They didn't feel so I'm not turning up until I feel safe. And we're seeing that in Melbourne. I'm talking to a bunch of people that have got a business interest in Melbourne and that they've shifted back to lockdown there. They've got yeah it's 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 the people they need to get out for essential work are, are, are not so happy about it. So the idea of being able to demonstrate direct organizational bottom line value of building A, connections, B, well-being uh, and, and enhanced cultures, that's a resilience capacity that you're building there. But I think your ability to tell that story compellingly will be strengthened when you can look around the leadership team and they know you've been talking to that person's team and that person's team. And you've got the story from over here and over here that says, this isn't me wearing an evangelical well-being hat. This is me understanding. This is a well-being and safety is a legitimate strategy for this business. And if I could pick up further to that, in our early discussion, we talked about how in organisations, often there's kind of a mantra, you know, don't come to me with problems, come with solutions. And I recall one of the pieces of advice or thoughts you had around that was particularly engaging with CEOs was coming with part of the solution but actually engaging in their thought process and, and letting them engage in that so that they come on board the journey yeah well look put it this way i mean i, I would say 90 percent of the forum's resources basically all end with question marks most ceos think they know the answer already so you can kind of you can kind of venerate their venerate the um dominant eric the ego part of their their, their, their makeup but you know i i think i think what you yeah, know i recall that now sarah i, I I think what happens is when you turn up and what you've got is the you've got the question and you've got the answer, what you'll get is an approval or a rejection. And there are some times in some situations where that's exactly what you need to do. We haven't got enough PPE requirements. We've got a we've got a procurement proposal here to fill that gap. Get on with it. Don't you don't need to turn that into anything other than what it is. But I think there are a bunch of other issues if we get below the below the weeds on the stuff we're talking about here. Whereas if we had the answers, we wouldn't be doing our jobs. We'd be we'd be would be banking the money and would be doing other stuff. The answers don't sit in your head. They sit across the, the organisation. And I've had a bunch of situations where I've thought I really had a good read on the situation. And I've spoken to a chief executive and they have added value by bringing a very different perspective. And they didn't poo-poo the question or what I had to offer. They just allowed me to place what we wanted to do. So I think don't be afraid to not always have the answers. I think be and use questions because what a question does is it brings you in, it engages. They will want to be helpful. So you're either asking them for something, you're asking them to approve something, or you're asking them to discuss something. I, I, I would, I would, I think we over we over recommend decisions, and we totally under and underdo the amount of time we spend doing what I call generative work actually working through and holding that complexity. And, and the beauty of this well-being and health and safety stuff is it's, um, it's really rich and it takes you to some really interesting places. And most CEOs I know 
once they get into that conversation, they actually really enjoy it. It resonates because it, it's true. You know, I think the truth <laughs> truth shines through. Um, yeah, I guess if I'm just thinking along that line, Sarah, of sort of what, what, what some other sort of things that I've found useful, and it's, it's probably more me relaying what I've heard others talk, and it's particularly relevant in a, in a COVID environment where we're so uncertain. I don't think we trial and micro experiment anywhere near enough. I think we often sort of we do the big we do the big launch of the ship. We crack the bottle of wine over the bow of our new safety program, our new well-being strategy. We spend a huge amount of time branding it and getting the getting the placemats and the mouse pads and the and the posters and the t-shirts. And don't get me wrong, I'm being deliberately facetious. That stuff's all important change management stuff. But there's a whole bunch of little micro opportunities, micro variables that we can do that can make work better in a whole bunch of different ways and the beauty of micro is micro think big that's fine but starting small it's easier to say yes to something small if it doesn't work you've learned something and if it does work you can do more of it and and i think that idea of start with questions but maybe if you go in with questions have some micro answers ready because then you can start to zigzag and i think what a what a crisis environment tells most most leaders know in a crisis environment planning and probability go out the window because nobody knows what's going to happen next month or next week. So the ability, and I'm not using agile in a project management term here, I'm using it as an actual dictionary use of the word agile, the ability to change and, and, and pivot, is useful. it's a legitimate strategy. In the old days, you didn't do your strategy planning right and you executed poorly. That's why you've changed. No, no. We've changed because we now know stuff we didn't do before. And so I think there's a bunch of really, really established approaches now that really validate the, the use of micro-experimentation. So I would I would really encourage you to put that in your tactical toolkit because um, I think, again, it's it, it creates a far more um, palpable conversation. For the it means I'm not always asking for a $3 million budget or a $200,000 budget to, to, to run out something really, really Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.